Welcome back, Servants Church. We hope you have your, your cup of coffee or tea with you. You're ready to go. We're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 27 and 28 today. So if you can find those in your Bible, chapter 27 and 28 of 2 Chronicles. If you're joining us today for the first time or if church is kind of new to you, just follow along if you can and uh, feel free to, to post questions or or. Uh, yeah, just to let us know that you're listening and let us know if you, you need anything from us whatsoever. So 2 Chronicles chapter 27 and 28, I want to read to you the first two verses of chapter 28 as well as verse 19 of chapter 28, and then we'll pray and we'll get into it together. 2 Chronicles 28 starting in verse 1, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, as his father David had done. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made molded images for the Baals. And then verse 19. For the Lord brought Judah low because of, king, uh, because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful. And Father, we pray as we uh, go even lower in this section of 2 Chronicles, as, as things get darker in this account, Lord, help us to remember that you, Lord Jesus, are the light of the world and that our hope is to be found in you. And I pray, Lord, that you would use today to, to help us to be aware of how easily we can be on the decline spiritually, how easily we can slide away from you, Lord, that we would see uh, the pitfalls, we would see the things that kind of trip us up, and that, Lord, we would turn to you, and that, Lord, you would give us what we need to continue to walk. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it, just as a reminder, especially if you're new to this, two chronicles, actually one and two chronicles together, are one book in the original Hebrew Bible. In fact, they're the last book of the original Hebrew Bible. And they were there on purpose because the author is kind of summing up all of Israel's history and preaching lessons from that book or from, from their history. And if you remember back in, in chapters 10 and 11 of 2 Chronicles, we have this big divide in Israel. Israel being one nation, 12 tribes. There was a divide when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, basically makes a bad decision about how he treats those who labor in Israel. And because of that, there's a rebellion with another guy named Jeroboam, and the nation of Israel splits in half. Two nations, Judah, or two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, form the nation of Judah. Their capital is Jerusalem. And the other 10 tribes form this nation that keeps the name Israel, and their capital is a, name, is a place called Samaria. And that's going to be really important for what we're talking about today. Now, from chapters 10 and 11, what happens is the author really focuses on Judah and the kings of Judah, those two tribes, and how that God had given a promise to King David, Solomon's father David, that God promised that in Judah there would never cease to be a king, that there would be a, a king on the throne of David forever. And we know as those who are New Testament believers, as those who believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that. He is it from the lineage of David, an ancestor of David, and he is the eternal king of God's kingdom. 
And so what we, we get into this section in chapters 27 and chapter 28, specifically chapter 28. And for the first time, really, the author begins to kind of talk again about Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's incredibly important for our context. Because what we have here is the author, in writing this, these lessons from Israel's history, is reminding a group of people who had actually, from Judah, had actually gone into captivity, had been there for 70 years, have come out of captivity, and they're back in Jerusalem rebuilding. And he's wanting to encourage them and motivate them to stay, stay on course, to stay to the task of rebuilding Jerusalem. And one of the things we're, we're going to see here in chapters 27 and 28 is, is if this is, in a sense, a reminder of how they, they got into captivity in the first place, how they declined spiritually and ended up going into captivity. And, and we can look at this and we can think, well, this is kind of a downer. You know, I really don't want to kind of hear this again. It seems kind of heavy. But the truth is, this was written as a merciful reminder, both to those who were returning to Jerusalem to say, don't go back there again, to go back into captivity again, but also to us, even as New, Christian, New Testament Christians, as New, New Testament believers, that we would recognize that these things are given to us to warn us, look, don't go down this path. This is God's mercy to us. And really, the good news is that we can recognize the patterns that lead to our spiritual decline, and we can avoid them. So there's three truths that I want to bring out from these two chapters today to help us avoid spiritual decline. So let's pick it up in chapter 27, verse 1, which speaks of Ahaz's father, Jotham. Verse 1, chapter 27, Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done, although he did not enter the temple of the Lord. But still the people acted corruptly. Now, now we, we get this introduction to Jotham, and we'll see that this is, this is the shortest amount of, of space that the author of Chronicles spends on a king. But interesting thing about Jotham, it says he does what's right uh, in the eyes of the Lord, in the sight of the Lord, according to what his father Uzziah had done, except in one issue, he doesn't go into the temple like Uzziah had done. If you remember from last week, Uzziah goes into the temple, he gets puffed up with pride, he thinks, hey... I can worship God on my own terms. And what happens? He gets leprosy and he's kind of banished for the rest of his reign. In fact, it's probably while he's still banished that Jotham comes on and begins to, to reign as king. So what we see here is Jotham is following his father's good example in that Uzziah did the things that God wanted a king to do. Jotham did things that God wanted a king to do, but he avoids his father's sin. Now, this is really important because it brings us to the first truth that's so important for us to recognize when it comes to avoiding spiritual decline, and that is this. A committed individual can thrive in a compromised culture. So now you might be watching this and you might be thinking, yeah, John, you know, uh, a servant's church is less than perfect. And, you know, there, it's got its issue and it's got its problems. And I really want to walk with God. And I'm not too sure I can do it. Well, let me have good news for you. Even in servant's church, you can still walk with God. Or maybe you're thinking, hey, uh, you know, this, this culture, our country is falling to part, uh, falling to pieces, and, and, and I don't know if I can keep going. No, even in this country, you can still continue to walk with God. In fact, sometimes it's interesting. We will see it, someone setting a bad example, and we'll use the bad example as an excuse for us to sin in the same way. Well, he did this. Why can't I do this? 
Instead, God wants us to see us to see bad examples as a warning or as a reason for us to avoid doing the same thing. In fact, listen to this. In the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes about the Old Testament. Listen, Paul says, Now these things occur, occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. In other words, they're examples of things not to do. This is what's great about Jotham. He, he sees the good things his dad did, and he thinks, okay, I want to do those good things. He sees the bad things his father did, and he says, I don't want to do those things. He was able to do that. Now, we, we keep going in verse 3. It says that he built up the upper gate of the house of the Lord. He built extensively, it says, the wall of Ophel. And it lists all these things that he did, how he defeats in verse 5. He fought with the kings of the Ammonites and he defeated them. And it even begins to go and talk about how the Ammonites brought tribute to him. And then if you drop down to verse 6, it says this. So Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. Now, what it's talking about here is this idea that Jotham isn't just wanting to do what God wants him to do. He is obeying, but it's more than that. Jotham's wanting to do what he does for God and what he does with God. In other words, this was as much about his devotion to God as his discipline to do the right thing. And that's important for us to remember. If you remember from last week, we talked about the importance of the heart and the problem of our heart, that we need to steer our affections towards God. Jotham does this. He's fulfilling the role that God gives him. He's steering his affections towards God. And the Bible says that God made him mighty because of it. That God gave him success and blessed him because he set his affections toward the Lord. Now, at the very end of this section, starting in verse 7, it says, Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all the wars and all his ways, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And he was, says the same thing he, he said before. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And so then Jotham rested with his fathers in the city of David. Now, these nine short verses tell us stuff about Jotham. That Again, we can think, well, it's really short. Maybe he's not so important. But it's important for us to remember this. Jotham's in a situation, as we saw in verse 2, that even though he did what God wanted him to do and he avoided the bad example of his father, the people in Judah were still acting corruptly. So here he is in a situation where the culture is compromised, but he's still going to follow after God. And even though his his, his testimony, you might say, or his, uh, his write-up is quite small, it doesn't mean that he's going to have a smaller reward. In the book of Revelation, we have uh, recorded for us, uh, John receives this vision of Jesus. And then Jesus dictates to John seven letters that he wants to go to seven churches in Asia Minor. And the, one of the churches that he sends to is the Church of Philadelphia. This church where he has nothing bad to say, only good to say. But I want you to notice what Jesus says about the Church of Philadelphia. Listen to this in Revelation chapter 3. He says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed you before an open door that no one can shut. He says, I know that you have a little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. I love this because Jesus is encouraging this church. He's not saying anything negative to these churches. Some of the churches, some of the seven churches, he only had negative things to say. 
But in this case, he's saying, look, I know that you're little. I know that you don't have much strength, but you're keeping to my word. You're not denying my name. Hold on to that. Jotham is a great example of this. Yeah, okay, not much written about him, but you know what? What is written about him shows that he was a committed individual in the midst of a compromised culture. So let's move on to chapter 28. The second thing that we want to learn, the second truth that will help us avoid spiritual decline, that's this. A compromised culture will follow a corrupt leader. It gets a bit sobering here. Look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 28. We get to Ahaz, who is Jotham's son. And it says, if we, as we read before, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was uh, right in the sight of the Lord, as his father David had done. Now, you think, wait a second. I thought you said Jotham was his father. Yes, remember, David is the original King David going all the way back many, many uh, generations before. But David set the standard to what the king was supposed to do. David set the standard of what it meant to be a king with a heart after God. And the author's telling us Ahaz wasn't like that at all. In fact, it says in verse 2 that he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and he made molded images uh, for the Baals. That is, he made uh, molded images to worship false gods. Now, just stay with me for this because it's really important for you to think about this. Israel, remember that the 12 or the 10 tribes that formed Israel, when they broke off from uh, the rest of Israel, and Judah just had the two tribes, Judah still had the temple. They were still worshiping God the way God had dictated he wanted to be worshiped. But Israel didn't have that. So they set up their own idol, call it Yahweh, set up their own idol, say this is the God we're going to worship on this mountain in Samaria. And so they begin to be uh, worshiping a false god, even though they say they still worship the true God. That's what we call idolatry or what God would call apostasy. They walk away from the true faith and set up their own faith. And so what it says here about Ahaz, that what he's doing is doing the same thing they did. He's apostatizing. He's turning away from true worship to uh, worship false gods. In fact, he's even worse than the kings of Israel. Look at verse 3. It says that he burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord God had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. In other words, the author of Chronicles says Ahaz was as bad as they can get. This, this reference to uh, burn his children in fire, it's a reference to worshiping the false god Moloch. And it's an incredibly disturbing image what they used to do. And we're going to talk more about this when we get to chapter 33. But you just need to know Ahaz has brought them at this point of their history to the lowest point possible. He was more apostate than even the kings of Israel. So what happens? Okay. The nation of Judah ends up forsaking God the same way Ahaz had led. Look at verse 5. Therefore the Lord God delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria, and they defeated him and carried away a great multitude of them as captives and brought them to Damascus. 
Then he also delivered him into, or I'm sorry, then he also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who defeated him with great slaughter. For Pekah, the son of Remaliah, killed 120,000 in Judah in one day, all valiant men, because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, killed Maaseah, the, the king's son, Azirakim, uh, uh, the officer over the house, and Elkanah, who was second to the king. And the children of Israel carried away captive their brethren, 200,000 women and sons and daughters. And they also took away much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. So, so do you see what's going on here? That Judah, just like their king Ahaz, followed into this place of apostasy, began to worship these false gods, and God brought a serious chastening to him. In other words, this, this word captive or captivity, it's used over and over again in this section. And again, the author's trying to remind the first readers who have come back out of captivity, don't forget what brought your ancestors to captivity in the first place. It was this kind of spiritual decline. It's interesting because it says really clearly in verse 6 that these guys had ex- experienced extreme casualties for the very reason they had forsaken the Lord. We think we can play with sin sometimes. We think it's okay for us to, to kind of worship God on a Sunday and then worship something else on a Monday. And we don't realize that all that brings us is death. And there's something here that I want you to understand about the main principle that we're getting, the, the fact that a compromised culture follows a corrupt leader. And that's this. A corrupt leader can often be God's way of exposing people's hearts. Sometimes we think, oh, the the people are corrupt because the leader was corrupt. Well, that's true to a degree. Remember, under Jotham, who was a good leader, the people still followed corrupt ways. And so God sends a bad leader. What does that do? It encourages people to go even further down the road of corruption, to decline even more. Sometimes, guys, we think, oh, we finally have the leader we want. This guy will show us the way to move forward. And we get the leader we want, and actually that's God's judgment against us. Because he's trying to show us, listen, the problem is you want a leader that's going to lead you down the wrong way. It shows that your heart desires to go down the wrong way. In a very real sense, this is what God's doing with Judah. He's trying to show them, listen, the reason things are falling apart for you, the reason there's such a high casualty rate among your nation, the reason your women and children have been taken off in the captivity is because of your own corruption. And you have Ahaz as a king because he's a king that suits you because you want to be corrupt. Now, in verse 9, we, from verses 9 to 15, we, we see something that's really unusual. This is where the author kind of brings back the, the ten uh, tribes under Israel, brings them back into center sight. Look at verse 9. So remember where we are. Israel's now defeated Judah, and they've taken all these uh, women and children Captive, And so in verse 9 it says, But a prophet of the Lord was there, that is there in Samaria, whose name was Oded. And he went out before the army that came to Samaria and said to them, Look, because the Lord God of our fathers was angry with Judah, he delivered them into your hand. But you have killed them in a rage that reaches up to heaven. And now you, perp- you propose to force the children of Judah and Jerusalem to be your male and female slaves? 
but are you not also guilty before the Lord your God? Now hear me, therefore, and return the captives whom you have taken captive from your brethren, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Now, do you see what's happening? The author of Chronicles, who's been highlighting Judah, Judah is the place that's meant to be keeping the righteous worship of God in its right place. And here now, he's, he's chastening, God is chastening Judah through Israel, who's supposed to be apostate, but God sends a prophet to apostate Israel, and what do they do? They listen. They actually listen to what God says through the prophet. So what happens? Verse 12. So the heads of the children of Ephraim, and then it names these different, probably military leaders from Ephraim, who came together. Well, here's what they say, here's what it says in verse thirteen. They said to them, they say to the people, they said to them, "You shall not bring the captives here, for we already have offended the Lord. You intend to add to our sins and to our guilt, for our guilt is great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel." In other words, what do they say? These military leaders, as, the, as their soldiers are bringing all these captive, they go, stop, stop. You can't do this. this is, God's just spoken to us, this prophet Oded. We can't do this. We, we've, we've already been guilty of this great slaughter against people that are supposed to be our brethren. We can't do this anymore. Now, now I, I want you to kind of feel what's going on here. So, so those of you who are already Jesus followers, you're already people who believe that, that Jesus Christ is God's only son, that he's died for our sins, that he's risen from the dead, uh, that he is God the son, uh, that we, you believe the right things about God. You, you know what I mean when I say this. Uh, you know there are groups of people who call themselves Christians that actually aren't Christians. So if you're a Jehovah's Witness watching this today, or if you're a Mormon watching this today, we want to know, we want you to know that we love you, but I say this in love, that you don't worship the God of the Bible. You don't worship the Jesus of the Bible, okay? So we understand that they don't worship the Jesus of the Bible. They say they do, but they've gone to a place of apostasy by making Jesus less than the Bible says he is, making God less than the Bible says he is. Now, what's happening here in Chronicles as, as if God sends a prophet to the JWs or the Mormons and they repent of their sins and actually do better than we do as Christians who hold fast to Scripture. That's what's happening. Do you feel that? Would that be hard for you to take? What would that mean if, if we were being so stubborn as, as people who believe the Bible, as people who believe in the real Jesus, if we were being so stubborn that we wouldn't hear from God, that God has to send a Mormon to say, look what the scripture says, and he's true about what the scripture says to chasten us. Because in a very real sense, guys, that's what's happening here. God is taking someone who's unorthodox, a, a people that are apostate, and they are showing Signs of repentance more so than God's real people. In fact, look at uh, verse 14. And so the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the leaders, uh, before the leaders and all the assembly. Then the men who were designated by name rose up and they took the captives, listen, and from the spoil they clothed 
all who were naked among them. They dressed them. They gave them sandals. They gave them food and drink. They anointed them. That's the idea that they, they applied medicine as it was needed. And they let all the feeble ones ride on donkeys. And so they brought them back to their brethren at Jericho, the city of palm trees. Then they returned to Samaria. So again, it would be like the JWs and the Mormons saying, we were wrong, our idea of Scripture has been wrong, and they repent and say, we're going to go back and stick to the Word of God. In a sense, that's kind of what's happening here. What is going on? What's going on is, is that God is using apostate Israel to chasten a compromised Judah. God is wanting to show to, to, show to these guys, listen, you're supposed to be the ones that keep right worship, he would say to Judah. And yet, Israel is showing more grace than you guys do. Israel is showing a, more of a sense of repentance and humility before God than you guys do. Now, what's the capital of Israel during this time? It's Samaria. And this is important because one of the, uh, one of the commentators I read made this great connection. And so I want to kind of share it with you. And the fact is, is that here, here we have, in a sense, a picture of God's speaking uh, to, <coughs> to Judah about the good Samaritans. Do you, does that sound familiar? Because Jesus, when Jesus was dealing with the spiritual decline in his day and age, especially among those who saw themselves as the most orthodox, he shares a story of the good Samaritan. Now, the story revolves around this. It revolves around this command that we see in the book of Leviticus. Listen to this. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18, it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so it was very well known. It was very well accepted that, that there's two laws in all of God's laws, in the first five books of the Bible, there were two laws that summed up all of God's law. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this one, love your neighbor as yourself, right? And so there's this teacher of the law that comes to Jesus. You can look this up in Luke chapter 10. But there's this teacher of the law that comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what's the greatest law? And Jesus says, well, you tell me. You're the teacher, basically. And so the guy says, rightly, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, great, go and do likewise. And so then the guy says, yeah, but who's my neighbor? In other words, isn't there a loophole where I don't have to love people the way I'm supposed to love people? Even though love is meant to be the defining characteristic of those who know God. And so Jesus tells this great parable of a man who's on this road to Jericho, known as this really dangerous road to walk. And this man gets beat up, he gets mugged, he gets his stuff taken, and he's left there for dead. And one religious leader sees him and goes, Ugh, walks around him. Another religious leader sees him and goes, ah, walks around him. And then a Samaritan, someone who worshipped God the wrong way, worshipped a false god, was completely unorthodox and even apostate in his understanding of who God was, stops and helps this man who's been mugged. Listen to this. This is, this is the part that... <laughs> that I want to share from Luke chapter 10, where Jesus says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And so then Jesus asked this religious teacher, Which of these three uh, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? 
Can you see the parallels there? It's almost as if Jesus is thinking about what happened in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 28 when he tells this story. And it's sobering to us in this day and age, because I have to say, as I've been uh, just kind of thinking about not just this text, but where we are right now in history, what's going on to us right now in this global pandemic, and it's amazing how many Christians I hear who act like there is no hope. And how many Christians I, I hear who are kind of licking their own wounds. And then what happens is I see unbelievers, people who don't even acknowledge that God exists possibly, doing all kinds of things to try to help people through this crisis and to give them hope. And that chastens me. Because I think, Lord, what's wrong with us? Do we think, oh man, our worship is so orthodox. We do all that we're supposed to do. But then we walk on the other side around the man who's hurting. That we thumb our nose at a culture that's hopeless. We should be the ones who have hope that point to who our hope is in Jesus. We are the ones that because we have this hope, we should be the ones who are actually looking to do what's best during this time. And it feels like, I have to say, guys, sometimes it feels like we're like Judah, who think that we should be the righteous ones, and yet our apostate brethren in Israel are actually the ones who are doing the right thing. Spiritual decline is often seen when we begin to follow corrupt leaders. And I want to, to, to repent before you now and ask you to forgive me if I've been a bad example in this. If I've been so focused on the doom and gloom and I haven't thought about the fact, you know what? This is temporary. We know for a fact this is temporary. Even if it gets much worse than it is, it's temporary. Not because just we know these things might be patterns in the world and maybe things will get better. No, because we have a hope in Jesus. No matter how bad it gets, we know the end. The end is glorious and it's good. This is where we should be. So, so these guys have this situation and the author of Chronicles now takes us out of the situation and he, he, he wants us to focus again about Ahaz because this is the third principle. And that is a corrupt leader will always encourage increased unfaithfulness. You see, we can, as we saw in the first principle with Jotham, we can be committed even in a culture of, of unfaithfulness. But if we put ourselves underneath corrupt leadership, we will then be drawn into more unfaithfulness. Look what happens in verse 16. It says, At the same time, King Ahaz set to, sent to the kings of Assyria to help him. For again, the Edomites had come, attacked Judah, and carried away captives. The Philistines also had invaded the cities of the lowlands to the south of Judah. Then it names the villages where they are and, they, uh, and those who dwelt there. Verse 19. And this happened, of course, as we read earlier, because the Lord said he wanted to bring Judah low because of King Ahaz had encouraged the moral decline of Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. Now. Ahaz, this happens because Ahaz, rather than seeking the help of God, he seeks the help of Syria. He wants the Assyrians to help them. Assyria was a, a power that would soon be the superpower of that, that region. It was just beginning to grow at this time of history. And here's Ahaz being chastened by God, Judah being chastened by God, even by the corrupt brethren of, of Israel. 
And rather than turning to God for help, he turns to man for help. And what does it do? It leads to more invasions and more captivities. What are we doing, guys? This is a serious time that we're in. It's a heavy time. It's a difficult time. Not, not minimize any of that. But where does our help come from? Does our, not our help come from God? Why are we listening to political pundits or, or, or strange new prophets? Why are we looking to, to, the, to man to solve the issues? Is not our greatest hope in Jesus? Is not our greatest help through Jesus? In verse 20, here's what we see happening. It says, also Tiglath-Pelazar, the king of Assyria, so this is the, the king that Ahaz is looking for help from, he came to Ahaz and distressed him and did not assist him. The idea for distress there is probably he, he said, no, I'm not going to help you, but I am going to tax you. For Ahaz took part of the treasures from the house of the Lord, from the house of the king, and from the leaders, and gave it to the king of Assyria, but he did not help him. Verse 22. Now in the time of his distress, that is, when this king he looked for help would only tax him, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. And then the author says this, this is that King Ahaz. In other words, as he's writing to this group of people that have come out of captivity or coming back to build Jerusalem, he's going, you've heard of King Ahaz? It's this guy. He's that bad. He's known for this kind of apostasy and unfaithfulness. He's being, in a sense, in a very real sense, King Ahaz is being identified by his self-deceit Telling himself, if, we, if, I, if I just find the right human help, we'll solve everything. Interesting. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, God warns his people about the curses that will come if they disobey him. And he warns about a specific kind of person who hears this curse and responds like this. Listen. Those who hear the warning of this curse should not congratulate themselves thinking, I'm safe, even though I follow the desires of my own stubborn heart. This would lead to utter ruin. In a sense, this is what Ahaz is doing. Ahaz is going, yeah, 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 okay. This looks like the teaching of God, but it doesn't really matter. I know I can find the right human help and I'll be okay. No, that leads to utter ruin. You see, Assyria's unhelpfulness only increased Ahaz's hard-heartedness. What about us? Are we going to lose our faith in the God of Scripture? Are we going to lose our faith in Jesus, our resurrected and living Savior? Because the governments are going to get it wrong? Are we going to lose our faith in God because things might not return to the normal that we were used to? Are we going to lose our faith? Is our heart going to get harder? Are we going to respond to this time of chastening? And I have no doubt that this is what God wants to use this time for. And we're going to, are we going to turn back to God and say, God, forgive us for our unfaithfulness. We want to be loyal to you alone. How are we going to respond? You see, if we are looking to corrupt leaders, and again, this is not me trying to diss governments because we should still honor governments. But if we are looking to corrupt leaders, all it's going to do is disappoint us, distress us, and lead us to an increased unfaithfulness. In fact, look what happens in verse 23. <clears throat> in verse 23, it says, For Ahaz sacrificed to the gods of Damascus. So these, 
these gods of Damascus from, from Syria who had <coughs> defeated him, he thinks, well, I might as well worship them, it says in verse 23, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them. I will sacrifice them. They might help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. This is interesting because it says of all Israel when he's the king of Judah, not the king of Israel. And the idea is this is going to eventually drag down Israel as well. So Ahaz gathers the articles of the house of God. He cut in pieces the articles of the house of God. He shut up the doors of the house of the Lord and made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem and in every single city uh, of Judah. He made high places to burn incense to other gods and he provoked the anger of the Lord God of his fathers. What does he do? Does he turn to God? No. He increases idolatry. He shuts down the temple. The only place where people could actually go and worship God in a way that God would, would receive, he closes that down. It got that bad. Now we read in the last few verses that uh, Ahaz, of course, rested with his fathers, but he's not buried with the kings. Now, I want you to think about something. Judah, the nation of these two tribes, Judah, is reaping what Ahaz has sown. Ahaz has sown unfaithfulness. Judah and the corruption follows that. And then they reap this harvest of judgment. Now, you guys have all heard the phrase, you reap what you sow. It's a famous phrase. It's from the book of Galatians chapter 6. I want to read to you the New Living Translation. It's kind of a paraphrase because it, it helps us to think about that phrase in a fresh way. Listen. It says, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful natures will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. Folks, listen. One of the reasons we go into spiritual decline is because we sow to the flesh. We sow to our natural carnal desires. We want to invest in and look to things that will make us feel comfortable and good instead of saying, God, we want to look to you, the giver of all good things. We want our focus and our faith to be in you. Now, Ahaz suffers permanent consequences to this. He's, he dies. He's buried away from the place of honor. The idea here is he's, he's not going to be honored in the afterlife either. But it doesn't have to be this way for us. In fact, I want to remind you of another story involving Jesus and another Samaritan. Jesus was uh, on his way to Jerusalem and he tells his disciples, look, uh, I must go through Samaria. And the disciples are thinking, Lord, we shouldn't go through Samaria. Those are unclean people. Those are apostate people. We shouldn't be near those people. But he's Jesus, and so they did what he said. And they go, as they go through Samaria, they get to this place where there's a well, Jacob's well. And Jesus is tired, so he stops, and they go into town to get some food and bring it back. And as Jesus is there, what happens? A woman of Samaria comes in and begins to get water. And you guys probably heard this story before, that he asks the woman, give me a drink. And she says, uh, I'm a Samaritan woman, and you're a Jew. 
Why would you ask me for a drink? This is not what would happen in that culture. And here's what Jesus says. Listen, Jesus says to this apostate woman, he'll, he'll expose later on, she's not just an apostate woman because of who she's around, but she herself is in a bad place, spiritually, morally. But he says to her, listen, Jesus answered uh, the woman of Samaria, if you knew the gift of God and who it was or who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I love this. Because the Lord in doing this is showing this woman and showing us who would read this account that no matter how, apost- how apostate the people are all around us, no matter how far we've gone down morally, if we will go to Jesus and say, give me living water, he will do it. See, <clears throat> earlier in John's gospel, in John chapter 7, Jesus talked about uh, those who believe in him, that out of, his heart will, out of their hearts will flow rivers of living water. And he was talking about the Holy Spirit. See, here's what Jesus does for us. Jesus, as God the Son, comes, lives a perfect life, and dies a death that we should have died. He becomes our substitute so that we can be forgiven. Not only that, He rises from the dead so that we can be declared righteous by God because of what Jesus has done. And when we put our faith in Jesus and we say, God, I know I could never be right on my own account. I would naturally go apostate, would worship you the wrong way or worship the wrong gods. And God, I am morally bankrupt and I do things I know I shouldn't do. But God, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, that he rose from the dead and that I can be right with you because of him. When we cry out to God and say, God, save me, you know what God does? He fills us with his living water, with his Holy Spirit. See, now, I want to be honest. Avoiding spiritual decline isn't easy, but it is so very simple. It's simply us going to the God who loves not just those of Judah, but even those of apostate Samaria and offers a way for them to be forgiven and restored and filled with refreshing, restoring, powerful living water of His Holy Spirit that we would go to him and trust him. So you might be in a place this morning where you're, you, you feel that decline. You, you, you've, you haven't been one who says, I want to be faithful to God even if those around me aren't being faithful. You have been one who's been negatively influenced by corrupt leaders. You have been so focused on human leaders that it's even causing your faithlessness to increase. You may be in that place. You see these pitfalls of spiritual decline. The good news is Jesus sees those too, and he's offering you living water. You might be listening to this, and this might be the first thing you've ever heard in church. And man, what a heavy message to hear. What a complex thing to, to get your head around. But man, if you remember anything, remember this. The Bible teaches us that this Jesus loves us, He can save us and He can rescue us from our spiritual decline and cause us to grow in Him for eternity. Father, I pray that You would help us to be quick to turn to You and trust You for the restoration we need. Father, please, these are dark days and it's difficult, Lord, because we, we don't know what voices to listen to. Lord, help us to be willing to put those all aside and turn to you. Yes, Lord.
to hear you, Lord. Thank you for the promise of your Holy Spirit. We pray you'd fill us afresh, that you would work in us, that you would empower us, Lord, to want to love you and to want to love others, and then to be able to do that, Lord. Your word says it's you who works in us both to will and to do for your good pleasure. So we trust your Holy Spirit will work in us and produce that in us. We want to stop sliding back, and we want to start walking forward with you afresh. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.